Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, December 16, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, the 16th of December, we only have uh, a mere few weeks before the end of the year, the kickoff of the new year, and Broadway Con on January 12th. So, um, are you guys putting together your end of the year lists? <laughs> and do you consider it the end of the year, or do you consider June to be the end of the year? I do. Uh, <laughs> I, I, ever since I was a kid, I've considered it on a seasonal basis rather than a year basis. So, um, so yes, it's uh, June to June for me. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, you know, I um, I certainly keep a list of um, my favorite performances and everything else. Um, so. If we are going to talk at the end of the year about the best, I could certainly cobble something together with very little effort. <laughs> Perhaps next week we'll uh, okay. do that. We All have right. a handful of things to discuss this week, including, Peter, you got a chance to see To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway, the Aaron Sorkin version, shall I say, of this? Adaptation. Uh, adaptation is a better word, Michael. Thank you. So, Peter, what do you think of To Kill a Mockingbird? I think it's extraordinary beyond belief, and um, I have a number of perceptions involving Aaron Sorkin. We often hear that Hamilton is a game changer. Well, whether it is or not, I don't know. But I would like Aaron Sorkin's To Kill a Mockingbird to be a game changer because he has not simply taken the novel, taken lines here and there, and uh, made a play out of them. No, no. I would say at least 40%, and I may be low. I would say at least 40% of this play is entirely his. What he has done is reimagined conversations that we never saw, either in the movie version of To Kill a Mockingbird or in Harper Lee's novel. Now, I, um, what I love to do is not a case of I do my homework. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is I enjoy when I see any type of adaptation going to the source material. So I read To Kill a Mockingbird two weeks ago. I watched the movie this week. And I really urge people to do it this way because you will be bowled over by how much Aaron Sorkin has accomplished if you do it that way because you will find out that um, he has added so much to it. You know, um, there was a famous incident with the Marx Brothers and George S. Kaufman way back when. Um, I don't remember if it was Animal Crackers or Coconuts or even I'll say she is. I don't know. But anyway, they love to improvise. And at one point, George S. Kaufman, uh, standing at the back of the theater, said, I don't know to who, um, I think I heard one of the original lines because <laughs> they, they were improvising so much. Well, it's almost that way here. Every now and then you hear one of the original lines because Aaron Sorkin has added so much. It's done in flashback, and what's happening now is that Scout uh, as, and her brother Jem are really thinking about what happened many years earlier. Was it a case that um, Bob Ewell fell on his knife? which did seem spurious from day one. And uh, now that they're older, they're really thinking about this long and hard. Now, people often say, oh, I hate when adults play kid characters. They never really do that. They, they play who they are right now in life. And 
I think that uh, really helps that problem that we have when people start talking like this. You know, I mean, there's none of that whatsoever. They don't pretend to be children when they're supposed to be children. And I, it's amazing. Uh, Bartlett sure did a wonderful job of easing us into that. So that was pretty um, astonishing, too. And by the way, if we're going to talk astonishing, uh, my girlfriend and I spent all intermission talking about whether Celia Keenan-Bolger should be in the lead category for uh, the Tonys and all the other awards or the supporting. In a way, it's a supporting character in the sense that she doesn't have as much stage time as Atticus Finch does, but she has plenty. And, you know, this may be one of those things where you feel, uh, where the producers feel, let's put her in the supporting category because she's going to win. Mm-hmm. If we put her in the lead category, which is such a tough year with, mm-hmm. um, you know, Janet McTeer and uh, po- probably Glenda Jackson and certainly Elaine May, um, I don't think she's going to win in that category because uh, those are more dominant roles, even though she really starts the story. And she has it. And I, at intermission, my girlfriend said, no, I think I think it's featured. And at the end, she said to me, no, I think it's leading. And I have no idea. I really don't. I can see both. And I know this will be the producer's call. But she is magnificent, magnificent. W- 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 never mind awards. Um, just uh, it's, it's quite an achievement. And this lady really is amazing in terms of being able to do so much. And I really believe that we're going to um, really appreciate her more and more as the years go on. And I love her Tammy Grimes knows. But anyway, so one of the uh, remarkable things about this is that Atticus Finch is uh, very much more a power in court than um, he is in the movie. Uh, Gregory Peck, of course, was magnificent in the part. But Aaron Sorkin has made him um, far more of um, an aggressor than um, <clears throat> than Atticus was in in the movie, so that's really pretty impressive as well. Uh, I did mention Dill, who's also part of this um, reminiscence. He comes back to talk about what's going on, and it's very funny. At the, at the outset, he talks about Romeo and Juliet, and you would expect Dill. Uh, a.k.a. Truman Capote, to know about uh, Romeo and Juliet. So I thought that was a nice little um, tidbit there that was great. They established the fact that the prosecuting attorney, wonderfully played by Stark Sands, a real tyro, a young guy, cocky as hell, has never lost a case. And that's really good, too. That ups the ante there as well. So uh, the N-word is said unapologetically with, um, I mean, this is the way it was, and um, you're going to hear it quite a bit, as it is in the novel. As it is in the movie. So um, so I would tell you, um, if you are going to buy tickets, and I think you should, don't sit in the first row, house left, um, because um, I'm telling you, Atticus and um, Tom Robinson's uh, gluteus maximus uh, will each be in your face during the scene. I, I, I do think that's a staging problem that shouldn't have happened. So early on in the show, when the sheriff comes to talk to Atticus about being the representative um, for uh, Tom Robinson. Atticus says a lot right there. This is a lot of Aaron Sorkin here where he gives his opinions before the judge really says to him, will you take the case? And we really see that he, um, his goodness and his inability to keep quiet on this because he's so passionate about it is one of the reasons the judge (laughs) says to him, "Um, you have to do this. And he can't say no after he's gone to such lengths about giving his own feelings. So that's one of the things that's really uh, quite good, too. We see um, Atticus's first meeting with Tom Robinson. 
And one of the things that's in the book and in the movie that's really significant is when Tom is on trial, for those of you who don't know this property, and I can't imagine there are many who, who don't know it, but just in case, um, Tom Robinson has been accused of raping a young white girl. And we really come to believe that she was um, out to um, seduce him, that she was really interested in, in having him make love to her because she even saved her money for a year so that she could have all her brothers and sisters go down and have ice cream far away so the house would be empty so she could do it. Unfortunately, um, while she was coming on to him, uh, her father happened to be sauntering by and saw her in the window, and he beat her up. And the thing is, they were blaming the black guy, uh, Tom Robinson, for raping her when it really was the father who was the uh, assaulter. So anyway, um, in our first conversation that um, he has with uh, uh, Atticus, he comes – we really see he resents – the fact when he says, I used to do um, chores for her and I didn't charge her any money because I felt sorry for her. And in both in the movie, they make the point that this is a big mistake for a black man to make in Alabama because how could a black person ever feel sorry for a white woman because he's black and she's white, therefore she's so superior to him? And it struck everybody as condescending. Well, here, Tom Robinson brings it up, and immediately Atticus doesn't say that's a mistake to mention that. And you really wonder, whoa, is this going to go in a different direction? Is Atticus not going to be savvy enough to know that that's a problem? But then he says, you know, on the other hand, um, no, don't say that. But what happens on the stand is so amazing. I'm not going to give it away. But let me say that um, what Atticus uh, says and what Tom says in that first scene turns out to be pretty dynamic and something Harper Lee and Horton Foote together didn't think of. So really, again, another reason why Aaron Sorkin has done um, a terrific thing. So um, because Tom Robinson just doesn't want to have his day in court. He wants to have his say right then and there in that conversation. So it's a marvelous, marvelous, marvelous scene. So um, so that's um, terrific. I, I had a little discussion at, um, at intermission with um, a critic I won't name who said, oh, I have so many problems with it because, you know, I mean, they talk to us. It's not dramatized. Well, no, this is a memory play. You know, I mean, therefore, do you not like the glass menagerie when Tom talks to us? I didn't think of it at the point, you know, and wouldn't you know that he left before I could um, <laughs> at the end of the show before I could say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, do you not like the memory play? And, you know, frankly, if we didn't have that um, specifically talking to us fourth wall, the play would be an hour longer. It's two hours and 35 minutes to begin with. So um, so I think that um, we needed this device. So I'm on Aaron Sorkin's size for making it a memory play. I think that was um, really good. Um, and Atticus is really good in the courtroom scenes, and Jeff Daniels is wonderful playing the part in terms of uh, letting people talk. Um, there's a very famous expression about courtroom trials um, that um, – it, 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 let witnesses talk and talk and talk and talk because don't interrupt them. Let them go on because the more they say, the more they're going to implicate themselves if indeed they're guilty to begin with. And that's what happens with Bob Ewell. Nice detail when Bob Ewell gets on the stand. Now, again, he's the one who's really beaten up his daughter and perhaps has done more than just beat her up. There's an implication there of that, and that's up to the um, audience to make whatever assumption they want to make about whether it happened there or it's happened all along. But that's another story. Anyway, um, 
what's real, a nice detail is that Bob Ewell, not used to being in um, a, a, a suit jacket, has it buttoned very incorrectly. And um, that's a very amusing little detail that you uh, may very well notice. Um, and if you don't, well, uh, <laughs> I just pointed it out, didn't I? Anyway, um, so uh, everybody's wonderful. Um, and I, I really thought that there was a good chance that there was going to be booing for Bob Mule at the end. And um, Frederick Weller plays it really quite, quite well and um, does what he um, does so well. But this is the, the meanest characters he's ever had to play. And uh, he does it astonishingly well. Another good idea that Aaron Sorkin has was to um, have him disrupt the courtroom. Um, he... Um, he has an outburst and he really comes uh, with arms swinging ready to beat up people. So as a result, he is thrown out of the courtroom. He is not allowed to be there. Now, this is even worse for Bob Buell. It's one thing for him to be there and hear everything and know exactly what everybody else is thinking. But because he's no longer there, well, his imagination runs wild. What are they saying about me? What have what has been divulged? What has Mayella, my daughter, um, said? Has she cracked on the stand? You know, and so this is really great. It's a smart idea. I'm telling you, this Aaron Sorkin really did a tremendous job in in doing all this. So there are more questions asked uh, by Atticus in the courtroom scene. Uh, more theories uh, put out. So that's very very good too. And. Um, there's a very nice speech, too, at the end. Um, this is brought up in Harper Lee's book, I'll grant you. But the fact is that even after Tom Robinson is uh, pronounced guilty, everybody knows in town that he's not guilty, that he was presumed guilty because he was simply a black man. And that was it. Um, and that's the reason we cannot have these uh, black people uh, win a case that sets a dangerous precedent. And what happens after that in terms of Boo Bradley falling on his knife, you really find out that there is a very primitive justice that was going on, at least in this book. I won't say it's going on in Alabama. I don't know what was going on in Alabama in the 30s. But as Harper Lee sees it, as Houghton Foote sees it, as Aaron Sorkin sees it, it's a very primitive system of justice. And even though we're always taught the two wrongs don't make a right, here in this specific case, at least in Alabama at this time, the only way that the right was given that Tom Robinson got any justice at all had to do with the fact that um, there's two wrongs um, make a right under these circumstances. So it's um, primitive is the word I'm, I'm looking for. And um, that's the one I'll select in terms of this. Well, I, I could go on, but what I, I really do believe, please don't just go in cold. Um, you won't appreciate it nearly as much, but this is really a masterpiece. And I am hoping now, as I say, game changer, that when anybody has to adapt anything, um, that they really um, do so much more than just translate, um, uh, bring uh, words from the, the specific page of the novel and just put them on stage and edit. Um, no, there's so much more to be had here so much more, and Aaron Sorkin has delivered so well, this should not be called Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. Of course, it couldn't have happened without her. Nobody's denying that. 
but it should not be called that. And I'm hoping in awards time that Aaron Sorkin gets all the awards that I think he's entitled to, because indeed uh, he's not getting his name up there nearly as prominently as Harper Lee. And uh, he really deserves to. And really, um, yeah, people talk about um, Aaron Sorkin um, being quite full of himself. I've heard that. Um, I had an experience with him that um, would suggest that. Well, maybe he's earned the right to do it because um, he's so successful in doing this that I want him to get all the awards this year uh, that he can possibly get. And it's going to be quite a race between the fairy band and to kill a mockingbird as I see it. And who knows what else is going to open up this year that may surprise us. We have no idea if that um, new version of Titus is going to be fantastic too. Who knows? But anyway, at this point in time, um, I am rooting for Aaron Sorkin to win everything since uh, he isn't getting nearly enough credit for writing this version of To Kill a Mockingbird. So um, this is the year of the play. Matt Temenini and I have been talking about it that. It really is. This is a phenomenal season for plays. Yes. Phenomenal. It's a, you know, not, not a tremendously strong season for musicals, but we're, we have an embarrassment of the riches in, in the play category. Uh, I, I, you know... Aaron Sorkin not getting enough credit. I don't know his name. Is, I have to. His yeah, name is as to. big as Bartlett Schur's, and it's all I, over the Schubert Theater. I don't know, but, yeah. I mean, but doesn't I'm sure it he got, say he got paid doesn't really it well? Say, I'm sure he got paid very well. But you look as you approach the Schubert, the big letters say Harper, Harper Lee's, Lee's. Lee's. Yeah, To Kill a Mockingbird. Her name is in front mm-hmm. of To Kill a Mockingbird in much larger um, uh, type than uh, than his. Um, I cannot begin to imagine how he could possibly agree um, to to that billing. And I guess there would have been no show without it. Okay, I understand that. But um, given the fact that we hear things like about um, William Goldman and Adam Gettle, who, by the way, provided a bit of music for this show, um, that uh, for The Princess Bride, there was all sorts of issues there, um, contractual issues and what have you. I, I, I'm amazed that Aaron Sorkin didn't say from day one, look, it's going to be called Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. And I have these tremendous ideas that, sh- that she didn't and Horton Foote didn't. I don't want to do it. Um, uh, that he was really hamstrung in that way from getting as much credit as he should get is really something to me. And um, it really shows a devotion to the property and that he really had a, it really inspired him to come up with so many wonderful scenes. Well, to recap very briefly, there was, of course, uh, legal issues that the Harper yeah. Lee estate, as I think we all know, tried to stop this production at one point. Yeah. Because- they felt it was not uh, it, it was not i don't remember the exact words but it was not respectful it didn't it didn't uh, it, it differed enough in in tone and 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 uh details uh, that they felt that it wasn't an accurate representation and blah 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 so it's uh, i mean at that point that might have been when they might have taken Harper Lee's name off of it <laughs> and and then just called it To Kill a Mockingbird and had it labeled as an adaptation. But that's not what happened. I remember um, – I, I have not seen this production, but I'm the world's biggest Celia Keenan-Bolger fan. And I remember I saw her actually in the audience at uh, Frozen around the time that this was all happening in the press. And it looked like this show might not – happen and and i and i said to her i i said i hope all the drama gets solved with your show 
And she said, well, you know, here's hoping or whatever. And it did. It certainly it certainly did. And it, 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 it certainly seems like it's a great success. So I I wonder how the uh, state people feel now. Um, it would be interesting to have a conversation with them, but I don't think I'm going to get the opportunity to do that. Well, um, th- there I was talking about the fact that I was in front of a, a critic. And now I'll tell you about last night when I was um, – in, in front of a different critic um, who was talking to a woman and referred to himself as a major critic. Indeed, he is. Indeed, he is. But he said, um, like all the major critics, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, he's, he, I, I didn't catch all the conversation, but he said uh, this is a travesty of the novel. So um, there are certainly uh, major critics who feel that, at least one, that uh, this is a travesty. Um, and um, I just respect it so much. Uh, and, um, you know, Years ago, um, 2001, there was a production of The Music Man that was called Meredith Wilson's The Music Man. It was. It was. I mean, they didn't change a word that I or, or note. I mean, it was Meredith Wilson's The Music Man. Um, the producers, the new Mel Brooks musical. Okay, fine. You know, but this is not Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. Hmm. So, uh, Aaron Sorkin. Uh, represented on Broadway by A Few Good Men, The Farnsworth Invention both in the very distant past, Few Good Men back in uh, 89 and Farnsworth in 2007. Uh, hopefully we'll get more because this is a uh, Syracuse University theater theatrical uh, program graduate uh, who has done very well in Hollywood on television and film. And uh, maybe he's making a... Uh, a return to New York. Well, he claims he claims he loves plays, uh, writing plays more than anything else. So uh, who knows? Uh, mm-hmm. He certainly has made enough money from TV that he can afford to write plays. So uh, I mean, I shouldn't be counting his money, but nevertheless, I would think it's considerable. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you know, and if we are able to get more of Aaron Sorkin on Broadway, that would be that would be a good thing. There was uh, an article in, as Michael mentioned. Um, the uh, the legal process of getting uh, To Kill a Mockingbird to Broadway. The article in either The Times or Variety this week with an interview with Aaron Sorkin discussing the details of, of how they had to go about that and and Aaron Sorkin taking a, uh, a view of... Uh, uh, from what I read, I, I, I took it as he felt as a caretaker of this work. Uh, in in presenting on a Broadway, so I thought that was interesting because most of the things surrounding Aaron Sorkin are very um, self centered type of things. Sure. Um, sure. Well, I well I read another interview with him, which in which he's very very honest about you know he he's he's very very sure. Um, you know about what what he has done, and he, uh, I mean, all of that comes through. I think that that uh, that self self-assuredness, mm-hmm. which of course, you, I mean, I would think you would have to have that if you're going to do something like this. So it's not false modesty or anything like that. It's not, uh, I mean, he, he, I think it's, yeah, I, I think he wants to obviously give credit to the, the woman who started it all, mm-hmm. um, because so much of it, the, the, the essence of it is, is hers. And, uh, yet, uh, it is apparently, I have again, not seen it yet, a, a, a very, very, very much an adaptation. And I remember uh, th- three weeks ago, uh, I, I had a friend who I guess saw it when it first started and said that you will love this as long as you go in knowing from the start that it's an adaptation 
you know, rather than expecting something more uh, closely along the lines of the novel or the movie. And by the way, well, uh, the play by Christopher Sergel. I well, mean, that, there has been. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to uh, say I think, that. Yeah. I, no, ahead. I think you mentioned it before, Peter. I was going to ask because uh, I, I, I forgot if you said that you have seen at least one production of that. Two, in fact. Uh, yeah, and that's uh, pretty straightforward. It's yeah. adapted both from the novel and the screenplay, but um, very few liberties were taken. Uh, right. Few liberties were tremendously taken. Uh, another one, uh, Link Dees, um, who's a minor character, in this play gets up in the stand and tells about Tom Robinson's accident that he had when he was 11 years old, when he was working at 11 years old, and uh, it cost him the use of his arm. And hearing that happen, happen uh, as opposed to uh, just uh, it's a casual mention in both the movie and the uh, novel but here when link goes into detail of how it happened as an eyewitness is really really powerful and uh, it, it gives you enough time to think wow what's an 11 year old kid doing this work for how can this possibly mm -hmm. be this horrible you know so things like that you know are, are really very 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 impressive and again that's something where Aaron Sorkin had to say, okay, I will uh, do this. You know, and what's also interesting is you might want to say, all right, there are 12 chairs in the jury box and there are no jurors. And you might say, okay, they didn't want to spend uh, 12 salaries. Um, and they didn't have an idea as clever about Fosse did in Chicago. It's really wonderful <laughs> that one guy plays the jury in Chicago, but he keeps changing his face and putting on a beard and all that kind of stuff. And that's a great idea when you have something that um, you, you don't want to spend the money, but you find a solution that makes it more creative. Uh, not unlike Tommy Toons uh, in Best Little Whorehouse when um, he had um, girls dancing with uh, – uh, two uh, uh, paper dolly type things on each arm. Um, and so uh, it, it saves money. But in a way, in a way, having nobody in the jury also makes the point that there might as well not be a jury. Mm. Because, you know, I mean, really, um, I guess I guess they're all home watching. They're all home watching Fox News. So um, that's what they're doing. And uh, yeah, really, I'm telling you, uh, so much imagination going into this. I mean, I you know, we have to go on to other shows, but um, I do have a specific question, Peter, and it, it may be hard to answer. But having seen both versions uh, on the point specifically of whether children should be played by children or adults on that point specifically, would you say that this works better or is it just different? A little of both. Um, I know that's not uh, a great answer, but um, uh, I'm telling you, it, it was about halfway into the first act, which is a long first act, by the way. Um, halfway into the first act when I realized, wait a minute, I, I have just been eased into this. Mm. I, I, it just does, it seems so natural. Mm. Um, so, <laughs> by the way, what Atticus tells uh, <laughs> Scout not to do something, Celia Keaton-Bolger has a moment where... I'm just going to say she uses her hand continuously in one motion that is so funny. It shows how <laughs> furious she is. It's it's really a highlight of the show. She doesn't say a word, but I'm telling you, she really expresses her frustration. It's exactly what a kid would do. I, again, this is uh, it's it's an embarrassment of riches as far as I'm concerned, and not that. That term often has a negative connotation, but not here. Um, it's it's embarrassing, I think, in a way to Harper Lee and Horton Foot, uh, because Aaron Sorkin has given so much more thought to what else could be happening in To Kill a Mockingbird and filling in uh, the blanks that um, that they didn't fill in. Uh, 
and again, they filled in plenty of things, but they just didn't happen to get everything. Uh, and there, uh, you really see Aaron Sorkin every other second reading the same. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What could happen here? Wait, what's going on over there? Uh, what's so-and-so thinking that we haven't heard from that person? That's mm-hmm. what makes this amazing. All right. Uh, we need to move forward into the oh, next. Oh. Yes. Uh, and uh, another adaptation. So, uh, Michael, why don't you start us off with the new group's uh, production of Clueless, the musical? Yeah, I, we probably don't need to spend as much time on this. Um, I uh, I enjoyed it very much, but uh, th- well, this is first of all yet uh, yet another case of uh, an adaptation of a very famous movie that I never saw. So I uh, I kind of uh, am, am of two minds about my uh, my lack of. Uh, knowledge of cinema <laughs> uh, of, of that period, uh, because on the one hand, you know, I mean, it, it's nice to have seen these things to be able to talk about them and to have experienced them and for whatever um, that they they have uh, to offer. But uh, but, you know, it's also good to go into something completely, uh, completely uh more or less cold and so you can see if it works uh on uh on its own terms now actually in this case i think that i maybe did see some of the movie <laughs> um uh. At one point, but I, I, obviously it didn't make a very big impression on me. So I was, for all intents and purposes, going in uh, to it cold. And I think that it um, it's a shame uh, what happened in one sense because I think it could have been really good. Uh, they decided to use uh, – well, what they decided to do ultimately was to use uh, songs of the period, uh, the I guess the 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 '90s, uh, and write new lyrics to them. Uh, all and and when I say they, I should be saying she because it's Amy Heckerling who wrote the movie and now has written the show, uh, the, not only the the script for the show but also the the new lyrics that have been set. Um, uh, you know, I guess forbidden Broadway style uh, to these songs of the '90s, except that uh, the songs aren't necessarily parodies, but uh, they are very. Most of them are very, very light in tone and and comic. So I, so they, they in that sense, they bear even a closer uh, resemblance to the forbidden Broadway stuff. But, but on the other hand, they do not. Uh, uh, resemble the forbidden Broadway stuff because the quality of the lyrics is really quite poor, I'm sorry to say. Um, I thought that there were constant, uh, you know, phrase after phrase kept screaming out as, at me as, first of all, not rhyming or uh, uh, accents not falling properly on the words and and just, uh, just poorly, very poorly crafted in general. Um, and that's too bad because I think in many other respects, uh, well, first of all, I, I don't know if the if uh, the the decision to use the, the, that music, I don't know that that was necessarily a bad decision. Uh, I uh, we have 
I think there are many examples in both directions of of uh, shows that have used pre-existing music with new lyrics uh, that and some of them are really enjoyable and some of them are just awful. Um, but I, I don't think that decision was so bad. It's just that I wish that um, Amy Heckerling had formed the lyrics out to someone else who could have done a much better job with them. Uh, I did hear uh, from from uh, from a critic, <laughs> another critic who was at the performance that I attended, that this show has been in development for a long time, and at one point it was not intended um, to to use old music. It was going to have a new score. I I looked it up. Uh, this morning, and I couldn't immediately find anything more on that. Uh, so let me just jump in and ask Peter now. Have you heard that? No, I never did. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I well, I won't say any more because I'm not sure if the information is correct. But but that's what I had heard. Uh, so they could have done that, and that would have been another approach. Uh, I think this would have been fine with somebody else writing the lyrics. Uh, but I think the tone of it is is really good. I think um, uh, it's it's. Uh, very well directed by Kristen Hange, uh, with lots of fun choreography by Kelly Devine. There's a very, very charming uh, and funny performance in the central role of Cher uh, by Dove Cameron, um, and that's that's a big plus because this character, this is a character who can be um, very. Uh, trying. I mean, that that's the point of the title is that she's clueless. She doesn't realize what's important. She doesn't know. Uh, she doesn't know who's the best uh, guy for her to be with. Uh, it takes her a long time to figure all this out. She's she's not that smart. Um, so, and of course, this is based on Emma. Uh, Jane Austen's novel, uh, but very, very freely adapted to uh, to the 90s uh, U.S. Um, uh, there's also uh, some other really good performances in this, uh, including Dave Thomas Brown as Josh. Uh, he was so good in The Legend of Georgia McBride. Uh, I, I was so impressed with him in that. And then I think he went into uh, Book of Mormon for a while, but uh, I didn't. He was a replacement, so I didn't see him in that. And I'm glad he got this opportunity uh, in this this really good role of Josh Lucas. Uh, Josh Lucas is the character name uh, in Clueless because I think he's just great in it. Also, Megan Sakura, Justin Mortaliti. Um, and I have to mention um, this guy. Uh, he is just really phenomenal. Uh, Will Connolly in the role of Travis Birkenstock. Um, and I looked up Will Connolly, and do you know what one of his credits was? He was the voice of that robot in After the Blast at Lincoln uh, Center. Uh. That that who did such a phenomenal job in that. He was also, I have to say, he played uh, the central role in uh, Be More Chill when it was done at uh, Two River Theater really? and, and has been replaced. And I am not sure that that was the best decision uh, because I, I did not see him in that, but he is on the album and he's really good on that. And he's just great and clueless and he was phenomenal for what he had to do in After the Blast. And I think he's fantastic. So I don't know why he was replaced in Be More Chill. Uh, but anyway, that's another matter. Um, yeah, clueless, I think, like I, uh, like I say, uh, that that uh, I think maybe the hubris of Amy Heckerling um, got in the way here, and I wish she had uh, let someone else write or at least help her write the new lyrics to the music that's used in Clueless, the musical, which is delightful but uh, would have been a lot better with much better lyrics.
All right, Peter, what do you think? Speaking of lyrics, if you're right now writing a musical about teens in high school, would you mention the word mean girls in one of your lyrics? Wouldn't you go out of your way not to mention Mean Girls? I mean, because we have a show called Mean Girls um, at uh, the August Wilson Theater. Why invite the comparison? That really struck me as very, very strange. So um, what's really nice about Clueless, both the movie and uh, this adaptation, is that we don't get the same type of child um, and childishness that we get from so many teen comedies. Mm. And for example, um, these girls have values that uh, you haven't seen since the first term of the Eisenhower administration. Um, Doing drugs? No. Um, Cher says that's a sure path to mall security as a career. She knows that drugs are bad. She (laughs) even um, is very critical of her new friends. um, Her name is Ty. uh, Her interest in marijuana and uh, her propensity to guzzle liquor. Um, I think you've had quite enough. She says at one point and with a voice that seems like a a school mom and um, Cher, by the, we have two Cher shows in town now because that's her <laughs> name. Um, and uh, Cher and her best friend Dion are virgins and they are in no hurry to abandon that status. Um, there's no succumbing to peer pressure. And as she says, as Cher says at one point, talking about the boys around her who are acting like morons, um, look what we have to choose from. You know, and so this is very, very surprising. Um, so is the fact that they read. All right, they're reading uh, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, but they're reading. Um, There's a moment where somebody quotes from Hamlet and Cher corrects the person saying, no, no, you got the wrong character saying that line. And yes, she admits she got it from a Mel Gibson movie uh, of Hamlet. It wasn't the fact that she was necessarily going to the library and taking out Hamlet and reading the Shakespeare text. No, she got it from the movie. And that's kind of funny for its own sake. But. It also shows that she pays attention. It shows that she's a smart girl. So um, Heckling really burst onto the scene. It's hard to believe 36 years ago since Fast Times at Ridgemont High. But this is not Jeff Spicoli. Uh, and that's what's really, really something. And, and this gets us back to lyrics because at one point right after she does the Hamlet thing, she sings a song in which she uses the expression, she don't. I don't think that this girl says she don't. I think this girl (laughs) says she doesn't. But I think Amy Eckling only had one syllable at her disposal, and so she had to do that. Yeah, there are some cringes in here. Snobby does not rhyme with party. Um, And then my favorite of them all, there's a a line, um, if Cher didn't have a trust, she'd be like just like one of us. And when I heard one of us, um, I I immediately go to rhymes whenever I hear lyrics. So I thought, gee, was that supposed to be if Cher didn't have a truss? Uh, no, she's uh, uh, she doesn't need a truss. She's a young girl, and um, that, <laughs> so I don't think she has a hernia. Uh, another lyric establishes that the teacher has a PhD, and yet everybody refers to him as Mr. Hall. Why isn't he Doctor Hall 
I mean, if you're going to put in the PhD lyric, then make him Dr. Hall. Um, there's also a moment, the type of thing I absolutely abhor in musicals, where a kid is up there giving an oral report, and um, suddenly you hear um, in the background music of America the Beautiful, because um, it's such a stirring report, you know, that type of thing. And the teacher looks around to say, where's that music coming from? I hate that type of thing. This is what people who hate musicals always point to, is uh, musicals being ridiculous. And also, it doesn't take long for Mr. Hall is like boogieing around the stage in choreography, looking silly because he's an older man doing it. And I hate that type of thing, too. Um, and also, I don't believe that um, Mr. Hall would say uh, to Cher, uh, what do you think of Elton's oral, meaning oral report? He's been around the block enough to know that you don't give a setup line like that uh, with orals. So so those are problems there, too. Um it's uh, to me the music was brand new because I don't know pop music from the 90s so um, it was certainly amiable enough and it sounded right for the characters so I think she picked songs that were right but um, what really impresses me is that uh, both the movie and the stage play really show us a very different type of kid now these are kids of privilege don't misunderstand me they live in Beverly Hills though an early sign comes in saying Barney's New York which could mislead you uh, in thinking they're in New York but they are very west coast and they're definitely belonging to the 1% um, and, uh, you know, houses with pools are as common as facelifts during um, sophomore year. Um, <clears throat> they, uh, there is plastic surgery that does come into play into the story for a little bit of time. Uh, money is no object. One uh, boy says to his girlfriend, give me $5, and she gives it to him like it's a nickel. So um, there's a lot of money here. And in fact, that's what gets the story going because Cher has a bad grade and she believes that she can get Mr. Hall to change that grade if she essentially bribes him. She gets him concert tickets to uh, this hot thing and she wants him to um, go with uh, Miss Geist. She's going to set him up with uh, her. And it's never occurred to her before to matchmake. And that's where the story comes from, Emma, that um, that she really enjoys matchmaking and she enjoys it because she believes she's doing something good. And that's what's nice about this property. She really turns into somebody who wants to do good. Um, unlike Emma, she is interested in getting her own Mr. Right as well. Emma didn't seem to be as concerned about that. But the matchmaking thing is a big part of this. Now. Uh, I have often heard the expression when people complain about um, teenagers, and I've heard it since I was a teenager, don't blame the children, blame the parents. And there's a good case to be made for this here because um, Cher's parents is a a father. uh, The mother is not on the scene, um, is a lawyer. And because he's a lawyer, he's used to negotiating and wheeling and dealing and all that. And so he doesn't value what Cher is learning in high school, reading, writing, and arithmetic. No. He is very impressed when she tells him that she's bribing the teacher with concert tickets. And he said, I couldn't be happier if you had achieved this through better grades or a line, something like that. So he wants (laughs) his daughter to learn early on that the way to get ahead in life is to wheedle, negotiate, bribe, cheat. Uh, if you have to, because that's the real world. So if there are flaws in Cher's characters, where did it come from? Uh, And we have to think that the father is greatly responsible. So again, she's slightly off the hook for that, because that's what she's been taught early on. So there's a lot of good and clueless. um, But boy, you know, another thing too, never mind just the fact that um, 
at the end of the show, we hear a song called We're the Kids in America. And you start thinking, well, they're the nicest kids in town. And that brings up Hairspray. And you think Hairspray and Dear Evan Hansen and The Prom and Wicked, even Frozen and Aladdin. They're all musicals about teenagers, in essence. So in a way, uh, at, uh, maybe whether Clueless is good, bad, or indifferent, whether it's a masterpiece or a misfire, maybe well beside the point. The question is, is there room for another one of these? And I'm not sure there is. I mean, mean girls may be responsible for these nice girls finishing last. Well, but on the other hand, as you point out, I, I mean, I think this is is different because it's so uh, – the story is so much different than what you would expect. And I guess uh, theoretically there are, uh, you know, unlimited stories that can be told about teenagers just as there are about uh, adults. Uh, so uh, I see what you mean, but uh, no, well, I, I, I just mean from a business standpoint, that's right. From I mean. the target audience and the ticket. I mean, audience. I mean, a parent saying, uh, I, I only can afford to take my family once a year to a show. What am I going to take them to? Right. Um, that that's what I really mean. I just don't know if there's uh, economic room for this one. That's yeah. all. I'm not talking about the quality of what's going on in, in many ways. I prefer this to some of the shows I just mentioned in a way. Yes. Um, but uh, but I'm just only um, concerned from John Q. Public's um, ticket buying ability, uh, the economics of it. I just don't know if there's room for another one, and there may very well be, but uh, I just don't know. All right, so that is uh, the new group's Clueless at the uh, Signature Center. It's playing through January 12th. Um, Peter, you went. Up, down, or sideways, I'm not sure, <laughs> to Fabulation, the Reeducation of Undyne by Lynn Nottage uh, at Signature as well. So why don't you tell right. us about that? Right. I, I spent a whole day at Signature, um, uh, Lynn Nottage, Fabulation. And when I'm seeing the play, I'm saying to myself, oh, this is great. After writing um, Ruined and after writing um, Intimate Apparel and all these other wonderful dramas, she's decided to take on a comedy. Well, I learned that this is not the first production of this play. This is actually a revival. This is an early Lynn Nottage play. Uh, it, was, it was produced in 2004. And how I missed it that first time around, I don't know. But I'm kicking myself already for having missed it because I would have loved to have seen it again which is what uh, but I had to settle for the first time here but I thought it was really really phenomenal and you know I'm, I'm a very tough laugher because um, uh, you know I've, I've seen a lot you know um, I mean a lot and under those circumstances it's very hard to make me laugh there's not one but two points in this play where I was laughing out of control and, you know, catching my breath and all that. And it won't sound like it's a comedy at all when I start talking about it, because it is about Undine, um, who is a high-powered public relations person, got it all, got the money, got the assistance, uh, got the swank office, all that kind of stuff, and is uh, very condescending um, to her employees and just thinks she's on the top of the world, and that's all there is to it. Uh, a black woman, by the way, and um, she, the only thing she really complains about at the beginning is that she was misquoted in an article that she had said that her family died in a fire. We will learn later that the family not only did not die in a fire, but she made that up because she didn't want to be associated with them. Mm, very interesting. Well, uh, 
uh, for people who like plays about comeuppance, um, this is one where it happens. As it turns out, um, she made a legal mistake, and um, her, her husband has as much power as she does over the business. And he just takes off, and she doesn't have a dime left. And, um, yeah, Tom Wolf said you can't go home again. Uh, and, uh, well, yes and no. Uh, you might uh, be more in, inclined to believe as Robert Frost said. He had a line something like um, – uh, home is where, when you have to go there, they have to take you in. And so her family, who's very aware that she had uh, said in the article that they had died in a fire so that she could distance herself from them, uh, very aware of that. And so coming back home, um, hat in hand, very meek, uh, turns out to be a real uh, problem for her because now she has to face the music. And uh, it's not pleasant music that she's going to be facing. In a way, this play reminded me of David Mamet's Edmund, uh, a, a terrific play about a guy whose life completely goes to hell in less than 24 hours. He just go goes on a downward spiral that um, some of his own making, some not of his own making, that really um, changes him from an upright a uh, married, um, successful citizen to somebody who's getting life in prison. And it happens in one day. It, the, the situation is not so dire for uh, Undine, but uh, it, it does happen fast. And it does remind us that no matter how high-flying you are, it can all come down very quickly. And um, I will say I think there's a flaw in the play. Uh, her grandmother is hooked on heroin. And the grandma says, please, will you go down to Calder and buy me heroin? Well, wouldn't you know Undine gets arrested? Um, you know, and uh, and they say she's a drug addict. Well, I would think that a chemical test would be able to prove that um, she's not a, a drug addict. But, um, um, but the comeuppance aspect of this is really, really wonderfully powerful. And to really mix the comedy with the seriousness is a major achievement. And I guess we're just used to Lynn Nottage giving us tremendous achievements. And um, this is another one. I understand it's been extended. Do get there. I think you'll have a, an amazing time of it. A terrific cast. Um, and everybody has to play everybody. And um, But Sharice Booth is terrific as Undine, just really quite wonderful. I will say that Heather Alicia Sims seems to be a little too young for the grandmother, but again, she has to play so many other roles. You know, we'll forgive her for that. But um, but really quite wonderful, especially when she has to deal with that family uh, who, has a, uh, who hasn't achieved nearly as much as she has. Uh, and uh, But at the moment... We're all one, you know, we're, we're a family again and uh, like it or not, we're a family again. So, um, fabulation is really quite fabulous. So, uh, quickly, a few things. It was extended to January 13th. Uh, and by glancing at the signature website, nearly all of those tickets are gone. Uh, uh so get to it as soon as you can. I think that the tickets are $35 flat. Um, it also brings up the point that uh, Lynn Nottage has had a number of outstanding shows and is only yes. represented on Broadway once in Sweat, which had a short run uh, last year. Uh, we have to get more Lynn Nottage on Broadway. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I think actually that that was one of her less effective plays, yeah. although I, I still liked it. But but yeah, it's ironic that that's what happened. And by the way, uh, one of the cast members of Sweat was Will Pullen, who currently plays uh, one of the kids in To Kill a Mockingbird. So uh, he's back on Broadway. All right. Uh, Michael, you got over to see Reuben and Clay's Christmas uh, show. It, there's a different name for it, isn't it? Uh, Great Adventure, or what is it called? The Reuben and Clay... I have to... Let me put my glasses on, because they... Uh, uh, yeah. Reuben and they... Clay's first annual Christmas Carol Family Fun Pageant Spectacular Reunion Show. Okay. Go. According to IBDB. <laughs> yes, and they, they make fun during the show of the length of the title several times. Actually, I think more than they needed to. <laughs> but uh, this was, I to me, a surprisingly delightful show. I uh, From the beginning, it, it opens with a, uh, a, a, a medley of Christmas songs. Uh, and the songs are, uh, you know, some of the more serious ones that, that you, that we all love. But, uh, while they are being sung, Ruben and Clay are doing this thing where they are trying to one up each other, uh, with costumes and production values, uh, as, as each new song, uh, is sung. And this is to play up the, uh, you know, the supposed rivalry that they've had ever since American Idol, uh, when uh, Ruben stuttered one and Clay Aiken was the runner-up. Uh, but they apparently are, are extremely good friends. And so uh, they – but they wisely decided to build this show on this uh, this – wonderful kind of uh, rivalry relationship they have a uh, friendly rivalry relationship they have and it's uh first of all the the thing that makes the show so delightful is is that sense of humor um there there are uh, moments in it that maybe become a little too earnest including uh, a, a section in act two uh and on that note i'm not sure it needed to be two acts i think maybe they could have trimmed it a little bit and one part that they could have trimmed was that very earnest section where they sing a lot of um very spiritual religious stuff uh i, I just think it goes on a little too long but uh but much of the show is is very very charming and funny and humorous and delightful and and the musical uh end of it is is very well handled they both have uh both of these guys have pretty great voices as is not a secret to the general public um they also have a, a small but very talented supporting cast Farah Alvin Ken Arpino Julian Diaz Granados Lynette Wallace and Ka, uh Kayla Wilcoxon, and the show is directed by Jonathan Tessero, excuse me, Jonathan Tessero, um, at the Imperial Theater. Uh, the um, the sets to me looked like they were repurposed from. <laughs> it looked a lot like my memory of how the Grinch stole Christmas, <laughs> uh, but that isn't that playing elsewhere as we speak. Yeah, uh, it's playing at yeah. Madison Square Garden. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. which doesn't mean there aren't two sets of of sets, but it sure it looked like that same kind of of uh, basic uh, style in the design. I, I could be wrong. Um, you know, very very basic set, but but you know, pretty enough to put you in the holiday spirit. And I I have to say, um, I, you know, I I, I wasn't dreading the show but i wasn't lo necessarily looking forward to it because i uh i'm not as special fans of these guys i just i'm not f that familiar with their careers and I, I you know i didn't know how it would be and and uh and the, the the audience was not full uh when i went in but uh 
the but um, by the end of it, the uh, the audience I would have to say was completely won over uh, those who weren't fans, you know, to begin with. Uh, and I'm sure there were many of those people there. It it really you you could just feel um, that the honest. It, really great enjoyment of the audience to uh and the wonderful response to this really very delightful show it's i i guess it's the first um christmas themed show that i have seen this christmas season so it got uh it got it off to a, a really good start for me and i i recommend it i really do i think it was delightful all right. So, and that is playing through December 30th. So you can check that out. Michael, you also uh, ran down the block to check out the prom once again, uh, to this time to see Beth level that the three of us missed. Uh, so tell us, how was Beth in the prom? Oh, uh, well, she, she was just great. Uh, Kate Marilli, as, as we had said before, did a fabulous job of mm-hmm. selling for her. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but aside from everything else, uh i mean well aside from everything else beth has the the uh i i guess the the history of, of having been in uh, leads in in a few broadway shows and just being uh known as a uh comic broadway diva so that um that you know just that history alone helped bring a lot to the part and of course her her timing and her her singing are are just great and her chemistry with Brooks Schmatzkis and Christopher Sieber and the rest of the cast is off the charts and so I'm so glad that I got to see both of those ladies in in that in this role in this show which I I absolutely adore I just think it's um a perfect uh uh example of a of a basically hilarious show that still you know manages to carry a a really a really strong and emotional and serious message um and i i urge anyone uh who is hesitating to see it for any reason uh to not do so it's 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 really just really wonderful i hope that um when uh, award season runs around, that it uh, it gets all the acknowledgement it, it deserves in terms of not only nominations, but eventual wins. So if you are sitting on the fence on the prom, you need to get off the fence because, yes. um, because the prom is not doing well financially at the box office. And there are a number of musicals that really are desperate to get into a theater this season. So if you do not see the prom, I'm not sure you're going to see it after February. Uh, well, yeah, I, and I, I hope that's not true. And um, I don't believe it's going to be true because I imagine that the word of mouth is going to be sensational on it. I think you're right. And, you know, I think we've discussed this before. You always um, I always hesitate to to mention when a show, a great show is not doing well, because then, you know, in a way you're, I guess you're adding to that per- perception, mm-hmm. but, but I think we, we, I, I'm glad you did that, James, because I think we have to be honest. It's, it's so, so good. And it, for whatever reason that it's not doing as well as it should be, some people have suggested that the title is not that great, uh, that the title, you know, and it's tough. I don't know what I would call it, uh, but, uh, but not having seen the show that you might think that the prom is about something else. You might think the tone is different than it is, or I don't know what you might think, but um, I think once you've seen it, it's the perfect title. Uh-huh. Uh, 
But, well, uh, I think that what you're saying there is very true. And, and you look at a number of successful and unsuccessful Broadway shows, and it comes down to the marketing. I don't think the marketing people have done a good job of explaining what the problem was or mm-hmm. is uh, just like Head Over Heels. I don't think that the marketing people at Head Over Heels did a good job uh, explaining to the public what have Head Over Heels was. Um, and it's it's very difficult. But, I mean, you have the St. Anne's Warehouse, Oklahoma, looking for a theater. You have a number of other shows looking for theaters that are— They found a theater, James. I, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, they found a theater. And um, you have a, a lot of uh, musicals that are trying to get in. So uh, I think that the prom is in, is in danger if they don't pick up their grosses. Their grosses are about 50% right now. They're doing about 550 a week, uh, and that's just not enough to keep keep running. Uh, but uh, Girl from the North Country, we have a rumor of Titanic coming back to Broadway. Uh, you know, it, these are all shows that um, are, are anxious to... Yes. Anxious to get in, and unless uh, grosses pick up, uh, you know, December is when you should be making your bank. Uh, January and February are really rough months on Broadway. But The Prom is one of those shows that's so good. I, I'm tempted to, I've never done this, but I'm tempted to, like, you know, get a sign and go to the TKTS uh-huh. booth. <laughs> or not the yeah. TKTS booth, the box office. And yeah. just, well, I mean, if people were at the box office, then they wouldn't need me and my sign. But uh, but anyway, it's it's so, so, so good. I just mm-hmm. love it. I agree. All right. Peter, you got to uh, City Center to see Barrow uh, Street Theater's uh, Nassim. So tell us about Nassim. The actual credits say the Nassim, Solium, Poor, and Bush Theater production of Nassim, written and performed by Nassim, Solium, Poor, and a guest actor. Uh, this is one of the worst things I've ever seen, ever, ever, ever. Um, I think it's a, a horrible uh, evening in the theater, even though it's only about 85 minutes. I suffered through every moment of it. And um, it really is a reading, but not in the conventional sense. As they say, a guest actor, the one I saw was not good, and I'm not even going to mention his name. But anyway, he uh, has not seen the script. He doesn't know anything about it when he walks in. And here's Nassim sitting at a table, which – and he's got 400-plus pieces of cardboard, thin cardboard, uh, pegboard maybe, with a line or two on them. And an overhead projector projects with those – pages say onto a screen and the actor reads them to us now does this make you sing that's entertainment i ask you well anyway the thing is one of the problems is you're looking at that pile of 400 plus pages and you see just how many you have to go before you can finally get out of that theater and to say written and performed by well all nasim is doing for 80 90 percent of the show is turning one page to another and that's all there is then what he does um, because he comes from a foreign land he shows you pictures of his foreign land what he's really doing is essentially showing you home movies and you know how much fun it is to watch home movies he brings up volunteers from the audience to speak in his language and he um, gives them a line to say and they have to memorize it Three guys get up there and they do that. Now, to be fair, it's not that he picks them out of the audience and you're dragged up. 
He asks for volunteers, and um, the volunteers get up, and they are each given a line of dialogue. Then they're given a second line. Then they're given a third line, and um, all that happens is that you see they can't remember them. And uh, putting these guys on the spot like that is um, just, um, I think, god awful. Uh, when I say 400 uh, pages. Remember, as I say, there's only about one or two lines to a page. So um, it doesn't even have to be that large. But because you're turning so many pages, the pace is always so deadly dull. So that's a big problem of all. Then he gets you on a long distance call to his mother in this foreign country, and uh, the guest actor has to talk to her. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a position like this, but I have. Like when your friend is on a phone call to his friend, and you're in the same room, and you're waiting for them, uh, your friend to finish on the phone call. And then the friend finally says, hey, say hello to my friend. And he gives you the phone, and you don't know what to say, and the other person doesn't know what to say, and it's just so awkward. That's what happens here, too. So, I mean, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And I know the theme is supposed to be the brotherhood of man, and then we're all connected and all that. But um, there are much more interesting ways of saying that. So um, I, I, I think it was truly a pathetic thing. And this is um, a follow-up. It even says on the top uh, of the beginning of the play, uh, the, I'm sorry, the front cover of the playbill, that this is act two because it is a follow-up to his play, White Rabbit, Red Rabbit where um, I will say I saw Whoopi Goldberg do that same type of thing. They open up the envelope, there's the script, and she's got to make do with the script. And to watch her do that and try to infuse humor into it and try to make a show out of it, realizing that she was up against deadly dull material, was really something to watch. But here I think it's it's an even worse experience because of the time-consuming turning of pages and nothing of particular interest ever happens. So please, I beg of you, don't drive yourself crazy. By all means, stay away from Nassim. It sounds like such a weird thing. Both of Doesn't the shows. It? I mean, Doesn't but, it? Do, is it like supposed to be kind of like a, a, a joke? That Oh, this is in deadly earnest. Oh, oh. no. Deadly earnest. Hmm. Gosh. All right. Well, that's painful. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to uh, something that is uh, not painful. Not painful <laughs> is uh, Michael. You got a chance to see the cinematic version of uh, the London production of Lincoln Center's *The King and I*. So tell us about that. Shall we dance? Oh, we shall. Well, it was just beautiful, uh, just so beautifully done uh, in terms of the the camera work and the uh, the quality of the image and the sound. Uh, this is uh, through Trafalgar releasing. This is not a Fathom event, um, or or maybe it was through Fathom, but it, it's it's. it's something called Trafalgar releasing. And uh, this is a, a a video version of the uh, production as seen at the London Palladium. Uh, that was basically the Lincoln Center Theater production, that beautiful production. Um, and it looks uh, pretty much the same. Uh, the, the, uh, the Palladium is a complete 
proscenium house as opposed to the the Vivian Beaumont, which is a I guess you would say a modified three quarter thrust, but but really they tend to use it more as a proscenium house anyway. Uh, I would say um, the uh, the sets uh, the beautiful sets are still in place, including that incredible ship that <laughs> comes on at the very beginning, and uh, most importantly. Uh, uh, two of the, the original lead, well, three of the original leads: Kelly O'Hara as Anna, Ken Watanabe as the King, and Ruthie Ann Miles as Lady Chang are in place. Uh, and it is so wonderful to have their performances preserved in this beautiful. Fil- I want. I keep wanting to say filming. I know that's not the word because it's not film, but this high def video uh, with. Beautiful state-of-the-art quality audio uh, of this full orchestra playing the incredible Rodgers and Hammerstein score of The King and I. Um, uh, As we've discussed before, it seems that there are more um, uh, of these kinds of uh, video and cinema presentations from London uh, than there are uh, American productions. I, I, I think it's still the case that the uh, the contracts and the unions make it easier to do it from London. Uh, we recently had the an American in Paris from London, uh, and we have set, had some uh, American productions, uh, notably Allegiance and also Bandstand. So I'm not sure. Uh, I guess every case is different in terms of how they manage to make it work economically with the contracts and the unions. But whatever the reason, I, I am so so glad that the King and I was received this received this treatment, and now we have it forever. Um, the the film of the King and I with Deborah Carr and, and Yul Brynner is is beautiful and one of my favorites, but it does have the flaw that some of the uh, best songs in the score were cut. Uh, that is not the case for for this version. All of the songs are back in, including the two most significant cuts, uh, My Lord and Master and I Have Dreamed. And by the way, a, a huge plus of this production is that the uh, Top Tim and the Lunta, I would say, are actually superior to the uh, to people who played the roles at Lincoln Center. We have Na Young Jean as Tup Tim and Dean John Wilson as Lun Ta. And in terms of both acting and singing, I would say uh, they they are just fabulous and, and superior to the the uh, Broadway cast the two people who played it on Broadway. Um, and in fact uh, I went to see this King and I with a friend. And as soon as it ended, the first thing he remarked on was actually, uh, Na Young Jean's acting as Top Tim. She, um, uh, she doesn't, it's not a huge role, uh, except she does have that beautiful solo, my Lord and master and the two gorgeous duets uh, I have dreamed and, uh, uh, and we kiss in a shadow, but she also has a significant role in the show in narrating the small house of uncle, the small house of uncle Thomas ballet. Uh, and it's not easy to, to narrate that in, in the right, uh, tone and and with the right inflections, but she did a really, really wonderful job with it. So I don't know when, um, uh, or how, uh, you will have access to this cinematic King and I in future, but I'm sure that there will be a way to see it, uh, or several ways to see it. And I urge you to do so. So, uh, uh, did you 
see a uh, general consumer show, or were you at a critics screening that was? Oh no, it was it was just a, a normal show, and I bought a ticket. I I didn't uh, ask for press tickets, and mm-hmm. uh, I. So how was the audience? Oh, the audience. It wasn't a larger. It wasn't one of the larger theaters, but it was sold out, and the audience loved it. Okay, so uh, hopefully we could see more of that type of thing. Um, also, it was in uh, I think at least three theaters in Manhattan alone. Uh, so yeah, I I I, I am I'm so happy that they did this. I, I kind of wish that it could be done for every good show. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, but I realize it's not very feasible. Uh, unrelated to the King and I, are either one of you planning to see the uh, Mary Poppins uh, returns? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm not a big Mary Poppins fan, so okay. uh, sure. I don't think I'll be going. Okay. The uh, there were there have been screenings recently. In fact, I was invited to one the other night, and I could not go because I had Broadway tickets. Uh, but you know, the good thing about that is it's easy enough to uh, catch up with it on your own. And I hear fabulous things. I hear yes, uh, I do too. Nothing yes. negative. You bet. Negative. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I'm I'm interested to hear more about that after you see that, Michael. Uh, and Rob and, Marshall, you know, of course, he did such a, an amazing job with Chicago, which revitalized the film musical. Uh, then I think he sort of – I actually haven't seen all of it but because uh, I couldn't get through it. But I think he stumbled with nine. But then Into the Woods, I think, was a, another – Excellent film adaptation, mm-hmm. and uh, and this of course is not a, a, a strict adaptation of a stage show, but it's a uh, you know I mean it is a, a high 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 profile film musical that is apparently already projected to be one of the biggest hits in history. So yes, get there. Uh, and we're getting uh, drips and drabs of the Cats movie, and <laughs> every time I hear more and more about it, I think. Is somebody punking us you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that it's going to be sort of half live action, half mm-hmm. computer, CGI, CGI animation? Yeah. Uh, yeah. We'll have to see about that. All right. Yes, uh, so the last thing in the morning is, um, Michael, you saw Martin Moran in his uh, one-man show, The Tricky Part. So tell us about that. Yeah, I'm sorry that I didn't get to talk about it last week because it's a very limited run. I think it I think it's sending around now. Uh but this is a uh, redo. Uh he has brought back this show that he did in uh, around 2004-2005 to great acclaim this uh, monologue that he did based on a book that he wrote of the same title and it's uh it's one of those shows that it's uh, you don't want to say too much about it because part of the wonder of it is uh, discovering it as it goes along, especially because it starts uh, as a very congenial, humorous uh, kind of memoir of his childhood. At least that's what it seems to be. And then it becomes very, very deadly serious because it's – well, it's about um, – a uh, sexual relationship that he had with an adult uh, when he uh, when he Martin was uh, between the ages of twelve and fifteen, and it's about his extremely conflicted feelings 
over that uh, and and also about him uh, then looking up the person in question, the man in question, and confronting him many years later. Um, this uh, show uh, was very, very well received when it was first done and, and uh, received all kinds of acclaim and awards. And so uh, I'm glad that he brought it back. And, and of course, it is very interesting to see it now with um well in the in the quote unquote me too era uh where there is thankfully so much more open discussion of um sexual harassment and sexual abuse uh and uh, which is something that was you know hid, hidden under a rock for far 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 too long in far too many cases um uh, and i think uh, that martin moran was a pioneer in that sense so he deserves credit for that in addition to um the the writing of the the piece and of course the acting of it is so so beautiful um so well done uh so all kudos to him and and i'm glad that he brought it back and that i got to see it again yeah unfortunately it, it as you pointed out it's uh the last performance is actually today sunday the 16th yeah. um so you're probably going to miss it if you haven't seen it yet um and it was at the barrow group so that wraps it up for our reviews for today. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you could subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayVideo.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be downloaded automatically to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways you can listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast, you can get to Broadway Radio. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about is found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, including uh, information on The King and I from uh, Trafalgar Releasing, um, uh, Nassim and The Prom and Ruben and Clay and Fabulation. Everything that we talked about is in the, is in the show notes as well. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Yeah, Baby is Cold Outside comes from a film whose name is mentioned in an 80s Broadway musical. What's the name of the film, the musical, and the song that mentions it? Well, many people said, look, I know the film is called Neptune's Daughter, but I don't know uh, what the show is uh, that mentions Neptune's Daughter. And it actually was the Galt McDermott and William Dumaresque a musical called The Human Comedy. And there was a song in it called I Can Carry a Tune, a terrific song, by the way, a very good show, by the way. Uh, and uh, it opened in 1984, and I'm sorry to say it didn't make it to 1985, not nearly. It was only around for less than a month. And um, But the score did get recorded long after the fact. It's a two-disc set, and I urge you to get it. Galt McDermott, of course, is most famous for having written hair. and um, But he really does marvelous work in this one, too. Okay. This week's question. A musical opened 50 years ago this month whose leading lady would win her first Tony, but only a dozen years after her understudy in this production would win her first and her only Tony. What's the show? Who's the star? The understudy and the names of the musicals that gave them their Tonys. <laughs> That's quite a list. All Isn't right. it? <laughs> right. So if you have an answer to that, 
email us at TriviaBroadwayRadio.com and let us know if, uh, we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. When the last leave the has left the sky <laughs> Shall we still be together with our arms around each other And shall you be my new romance On the clear understanding that this kind of thing can happen Shall we dance, shall we dance, shall we dance one, two, three, and one, two, three, and one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. Oh, what's wrong? I know, I know, I forget. And oh. this time I remember. <laughs> one, two, three, and one, two, three, and one, two, three, and that's splendid, Your Majesty. Splendid. Ah, you have thrown me off count. No, no, no. But this is not right. Not the way I see your peons dancing tonight. Y- yes, it was. It was just like that. No. We're not holding two hands like this. No. No, as a matter of fact... Was like this? No.